0: Welcome to the Outside Right Podcast. Welcome to the Outside Right Podcast. I am editor Chris Lee and coming up in this episode...
1: And then in 1899, he founded the Milan Football and Cricket Club and he led the side to its first three championship titles.
0: We talk to the team behind the Lord of Milan. The story about the founder of AC Milan, Herbert
2: Kilwin. I think there's a lot of similarities between Australia and the MLS in America, which where football's kind of come from a very similar place. It's not the dominant sporting code. The, the culture is, again, sort of ended post-season finals. And that's very much the case over here.
0: And we get the lowdown from Down Under on Australia's A-League, from locally-based football podcaster Gary Andrews. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. So I'm joined by Robert, Georgie and Jared, who have written a book and created a film around a gentleman called Herbert Kilpin, uh, otherwise known as the Lord of Milan. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much. Hi, Chris. Um, could you briefly introduce yourself and uh, everything about you know what you've been doing around Herbert Kilpin?
1: Okay. Uh, I'm Robert. I wrote the book, The Lord of Milan, which is a novel based on the life of Kilpin and inspired by his story in going to Italy and founding the club, the Milan Football and Cricket Club.
3: I'm Georgie, and I'm sort of part of the team that, that filmed and has worked on the, the film since the, the beginning. and uh, Sort of co-directed it, to so help structure it, and yeah, and put it together, and make it appeal to people who aren't necessarily massive football fans.
4: I'm Jared. I'm also the co-director of the film.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. This sounds like a fascinating story. So who was Herbert Kilpin and how did you come across his story?
4: Okay.
1: Um, I came across a story when I read the front page of the Nottingham Evening Post, as it was about 10 years ago, and it said that a local lad had founded the world famous football club. Uh, Herbert was a textile worker from Nottingham, who was an amateur footballer. Uh, he left Nottingham to go to Italy for work purposes, and he initially went to Turin, where he played for a a club called Internazionale in Turin. Uh, He left in 1891 to go to Italy. And then in 1899, he founded the Milan Football and Cricket Club and he led the club, the side, to its first three championship titles.
4: And then following that, um, we met Robert um, a couple of years ago um, through Nottingham City of Football. Um, We we kind of rediscovered this story, which I think has been pretty unknown in the city of Nottingham for a long time. And we, Left Lion, um, were working from a premises next to the Adams building, which was where he did his textile work in Nottingham. And I personally used to walk past his old house twice a day on my walk into and out of work. And I couldn't believe that this man who founded AC Milan had, um, had, you know, walked the same streets as me. It was this amazing story. So we we decided we had to make a film.
0: So tell us about the film then. I mean, Is it based on the book or is it uh, it based on fact? Is it a docurama?
3: What's the sort of context of the film? The the film's a completely documentary about, um, we follow his life in a sort of biographical structure. So we um, talk to historians who tell us about Nottingham, where Nottingham was, when Herbert Kilpin was born and had a bit of context to where he came from. Um, And it's also a look at the influence that AC Milan and therefore Herbert Kilpin has had on um on people who have played for Milan and also just normal people who have become massive fans of of Milan. So it's sort of a yeah, a look at the impact that Herbert Kilpin has had on football and on individual people's lives.
0: Did he have anything to do with either forest or county before he went to Turin?
3: Well Herbert um Herbert played
4: on the Forest Recreation Ground, his early football which gave it which Forest name came inadvertently from, um, but Herbert also knew a man out in Italy called John Savage, who in another Italian football league from uh, sorry Tom Tom Savage. There's there's a whole story in his mm-hmm. name there as well. But Tom Savage came from uh, Nottingham as well and emigrated to Italy at the same time. And the reason that Juventus wear black and white is because he shipped over a kit when Juventus wore pink um, from Notts County to Juventus. And basically in the film there's there's photos of those two together, um, which are not easy to come by.
3: It's also worth um, noting that Kilpin wasn't actually good enough to play for Forest or County at the time, so he, he he didn't, yeah, he sort of wasn't connected on that level.
1: So he just had to go and form AC Milan instead. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. And I guess, does it chronicle the story of AC Milan in terms of now? They're obviously huge, maybe not as big as in the 90s, but, you know, when were they one of the sort of Founding members of the Italian League or anything
4: like that. Well, it puts some of that into context. I mean, the truth about the film is it, it is about football, but it's also um, a bit of a love story between you know between two European countries and two European cities. Um, it's you know it's about the interaction between the fans. So the you know one of the main people in the film is Luigi Rocca who was a historian from Milan that did um, a lot of the work, and you know Robert can tell you about that. That. Um, but basically, um, we brought him to Nottingham and took him around the birthplace of Herbert Kilpin and, and showed him some of these. And he's a significant figure in Milan. Um, we, we also, other footballing names that are in the field, Daniela Masaro's in it, who's obviously a great AC Milan player. Um, Lodetti, who's another great AC Milan player from the era before. And then two players with Nottingham and AC Milan links that are in it, are Mark Haitley. Um, who played for AC Milan, and his father was a distinguished Notts County player, so he was actually born and brought up in Nottingham. And finally, Luther Blissett, who um, who's just a top bloke, and um, and he, towards the end of his career, he played football in Nottinghamshire for Mansfield Town, and obviously he played um, for AC Milan too.
0: And he was also, wasn't he a voice on um, Gazzetta Football Italia as well?
4: If you Google Luther Blissett, he's actually everything, okay? The, check, you're, 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 you know You should check out the Luther Blissett movement as well, because... Um, Luther Blissett has written books and made songs and other things um, but it's just people adapting his name he's that much of a legend across Europe.
0: Okay so here's the controversial thing and I wrote a piece on James Spensley the founder of the football branch of Genoa uh, Cricket and Football Club um, who some claim introduced association football into Italy but you argue Kilpin is the Father of Italian football. So, what is the relationship between Kilpin and Spenceley? Did they ever meet? And, and how come many regard Spenceley over Kilpin as the, uh, the father of, of football? Good
1: question. Um, the father of Italian football, the English father of Italian football, was probably Kilpin. But um, what happened was a chap called Bosio was an Italian guy from Turin who came to Nottingham, brought Kilpin and I think Savage back to Italy with him. So, um, Bosio had set up football team in about eighteen eighty seven. Also he brought Kilpin over in eighteen ninety one and then he formed Internazionale, Torino. That was two years before General were founded, in eighteen ninety-three. And I think Spenceley wasn't a founder member of General. I think he came over in about eighteen ninety-six and I think he was famous because he turned it from an expat game into a game which included Italians. I think at the AG, the first AGM at which he was present, he passed a motion to allow Italians to play the game as well. So he was very, very influential because General were the first great football side. I think they won five of the first six championships. Yeah, and He often played against Kilpin because Milan were formed in 1899, their first season was 1900. Um, they played two or three finals against one another and I think at times they also played together for representative sides against visiting foreign teams from switzerland and from france so um they they knew each other they played alongside each other but more often than not against one another but always with a great spirit of camaraderie
0: so there wasn't any kind of ego at the time about who introduced it maybe that's something that historically we've looked back on
1: oh, I, I think these were all sort of gentlemen amateurs because from what from what i know because i mentioned uh Spenceley in my book he was a Very, very, he was an upstanding gentleman, a true gentleman amateur, as Kilpin was, because I think um, he also contributed to the founding of the scout movement in Italy. Oh, right. And I think he died uh, tending to the wounds of a German soldier, because he was a doctor, in no man's land in the First World War, uh, when he was shot by a German sniper. So, uh, and his motto was, never kick a man when he's down. So, I don't think egos really came into it. I think they just, they just played for the love of the game.
0: Uh So, uh, this is... The Lord of Milan, the film. When when is it coming out, and where can people
4: uh, catch it? Well, we've got the preview screening this Sunday in Nottingham, which is um, it's a Broadway Cinema, which is the the cinema where Tarantino launched Pulp Fiction many years ago. Unfortunately, um, it's completely sold out. Um, we're doing a screening there. We're doing a screening in Milan at the Fix Film Festival um, in November the eighteenth. And um, and then to be honest, we're looking for further distribution after that. So we've entered it into certain film festivals like Tribeca, and we we, we plan to enter it into Sheffield Doc Fest. Um, but at the moment, we want as many people to see this as possible. But this is just done by us in a small media company called Left Lion. So if any of your listeners out there um, have massive distribution networks for <laughs> films, then please give us a call.
0: Absolutely, and. Where can people connect with you guys online if they uh,
4: Well, www.leftline.co.uk is the home of Nottingham culture in all kinds of places. Um, www.law.milan uh, gives you details about the book and the film. Um, and if you just put Left Lion into Google, you'll find us. Brilliant. Thanks very much, guys.
0: The Outside Right podcast. Before we go on, if you enjoy what you hear, do please go over to your podcast provider and give us a score and a write-up would be much appreciated the outside right podcast so i'm delighted to be joined by one of the regular guests on our show gary andrews who's decamped to sydney welcome gary hi chris it's uh really good to be on here absolutely you've been on uh before and we're just about to talk about ground hopping in australia
2: but um just briefly introduce us uh, to you and your work i've been writing about football for best part of the last decade um on and off i've done a number of podcasts so you might remember the two for the tackle podcast from a few years ago um featured regularly in when saturday comes and just started a new podcast with a friend of mine when got down under because there's no better way to to kind of learn the sporting culture than to find somebody else who's also into it and just start spending an hour or two just talking about the local sport whether that's football rugby, anything else, and boy, the Australians really do like their sport. Fill us in on the A-League then. What's the format? Uh, Who are the key
0: teams and players that we should know about? And when does the season run? Because obviously there's a number of other codes of football there that it needs to, uh, has to compete with.
2: The season's just kicked off. We're actually, as we're recording at the moment, we're into the third round of games. Um, It's a bit of a funny league um, and takes a bit of getting your head around if you're a sort of fan of European soccer. So You've got 10 teams in the league. They're all kind of franchises, really, um, although getting pretty well embedded into the areas that they're at. But yeah, so you've got 10 teams. Um, Each team plays each other uh, three times over the course of a season rather than twice because there's not really enough games to kind of draw it out. And then Australians really love a grand final. So at the end of it, you have the regular season winner and they're crowned with the Premier's plate, but they're not crowned actual champions. That then goes into the grand final. So the top six teams out of the 10 then go forward to to finals football. And um, then the bottom teams generally tend to be eliminated and you finally get two Two teams play together Um, and it's the same as you get with Rugby League over here with AFL. It just becomes a a kind of showpiece occasion because that's kind of really how it's been ingrained in Australian sporting culture. And I think there's a lot of similarities between Australia and the MLS in America, which where football's kind of come from a very similar place. It's not the dominant sporting code. The the culture is, again, sort of ended post-season finals. And that's very much the case over here. So it does mean you've got an awful lot of the regular season, whereby actually there can be a, a lot to get through. But by the time you sort of get to the grand final, you can get some really exciting stuff especially when it gets towards the end of the season and you've got a number of teams fighting it out for that top six position and you've got a kind of a different types of teams here as well you've got some big clubs and you've got some smaller clubs um australia quite strict with its salary cap as well which- which means that one side is theoretically not meant to get bigger than others and and levels out the playing field. In reality, over the past few seasons, some of the teams have been a lot worse than others. So, for example, the Newcastle Jets haven't made um, the final in the best pass of half decade, whereas Melbourne Victory um, tend to be up in the finals or com- competing for the grand final quite regularly but it does mean that you've you've got a kind of odd little balance and in the last couple of years it started to tip towards those bigger clubs which have been melbourne victory one of them um sydney fc are the other one they're the current reigning champions received wisdom is that they will be champions again this year um which is quite unusual it's quite unusual for a team to do back-to-back championships um I'm not so sure whether they will, having watched them a couple of times this season. I I don't think they've quite got started yet. And there's some good sides around there. You've got Melbourne City, who are owned by um, the same company who own Manchester City. It's one of their footballing outposts in the global conglomerate. You've got the Western Sydney Wanderers, who are probably the closest to any team that, um, I guess, more European fans would recognise. And that's because a lot of their fan base comes from the european immigrants um and a lot of them who kind of started up clubs in western sydney so they have a much more closer kind of connection and fan culture that i think a lot of uh, a lot of european fans would probably understand they're a relatively new team they only came into to the league um again sort of about half a half a decade ago um due to various other collapses of, of teams and in this short time They've uh, they've taken a premier's plate. They've won the Asian Champions League as well. So they've done a lot in a short history. Then you've got um, the Brisbane Raw, who have also got a, a fair bit of history. It's where the current Australian coach, Ange Postacoglu, cut his teeth in the A-League, produced probably, I'd say, one of the uh, best teams um, I think I've ever seen uh, in, in Australian football. And I've been watching it for about five, six years or so brisbane raw under postacoglu were absolutely fantastic they were called raw salona because they played very much like barcelona a kind of quick moving possession game and they were fabulous to watch then you've got smaller teams like the central coast mariners you've got adelaide united um and you've got wellington phoenix as well and perth glory who make up the 10 Mm. um generally you can find that the melbourne victory and will probably end up in there. western sydney as well, are normally nailed on. Sydney FC um, tend to be nailed on. And lastly, Melbourne City as well. They were formerly known as Melbourne Heart and uh, didn't really do much, but since they were taken over, they've been expectation of finals. And I think that's where you kind of start finding Australian soccer at a little bit of a crossroads now because you can see that there's the the four teams that um, that are pretty much guaranteed to make it so the other spots seem to be a bit of a fight between all all of the others you do get some surprises a couple of seasons ago Adelaide United barely won a game in the first couple of months and yet were able to storm through take the uh, premier's plate and also won the grand final um, which probably says more about the depth of Australian soccer than anything else but it's it's a kind of curious mix, and there's a lot of talk now about expansion of the team, or um, sorry, expansion of the leagues, and where uh, and, and if the FFA, which is the governing body over here, will uh, will expand into either new markets or whether it will uh, produce second or third teams in existing cities as well. And there's there's a lot of talk around that, and I think a lot of fans who've been who've been brought up on kind of more European soccer as well do start talking about promotion and relegation. Personally, I don't think that that's going to work, at least not for, for a good few years, because I just don't think there's the depth in, in Australian soccer to cover it. But it certainly shows that the league's growing up and maturing a bit. And you are starting to get a lot more more young Australian players come through the league, although many of the talents get hovered up by either the big Asian clubs or, or head over to Europe to try their luck before coming back. It's a real mixture of a league, and the quality is pretty good as well. Um, I believe BT Sports still show it in the mornings in the UK. So um, if you're up at, at a decent enough time, get some uh, get some football with your cornflakes because it's really entertaining to
0: watch. Well, that sounds good. What sort of prices would you expect to pay uh, to pay as an uh, attendee, and what kind of attendance do you get? Because I imagine as travelling those massive distances, especially between you know Wellington and
2: Perth. I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, so tomorrow night after we record is uh, is the sydney derby um and that's between sydney sc and western sydney wanderers and um i think last season it was one of the, the few games to actually sell out the alliance arena and again it's expected to be a near sellout again which is quite unusual because last weekend i was at uh, sydney against wellington um as you you, you kind of said you don't get very many. I think I could count most of the away fans on on two hands. Um, there really weren't many around there at all, and the stadium had about a thousand. Um, it'll be pretty much full capacity, I would imagine. And so, in terms of being able to get a ticket, if you're over here, you'll will, you'll will absolutely be able to get a ticket unless it's for one of the big derby games. Probably more the Sydney derby, the Melbourne derby, because Melbourne City are a curious club. They still kind of. I think, trying to find out who their main audience is and and, and who they are. So, you know, you might, you'll probably be able to get a ticket to the Melbourne Derby without too much problem. Sydney Derby might be a bit more, more problematic, but for pretty much any other game, even ones with sort of very traditional rivalries, like say Newcastle versus Central Coast, um, you're probably not going to have too much problem. You do get pretty decent crowds and, and there's a lot of criticism over here about the crowds that, soccer teams attract. But actually, um, a couple of months ago, I went to watch the Sydney Roosters play the Great West Tigers in um, in the NRL, um, same stadium. And this was the Roosters at the time were, were pushing again for the postseason finals, could have even had a shot at, at finishing kind of second, which would have been really advantageous to them. And there were fewer people at that game, which was between two traditional rivals, East versus West in in Sydney, than there was at Sydney Wellington. So I think, you know, you qualify it a little bit. Prices aren't too bad. I mean, you can get a pretty decent seat for around about the equivalent of £25 in the UK. And that's, you know, top flight football in, in Australia. The stadiums are pretty decent. The facilities are pretty decent. Kind of level is about championship level in terms of quality with some of the bigger teams. So I think it's it's pretty good value for what you're going to get.
0: There's some of, like There's a few dead rubbers in there, though, given the league format. But... Um... I, I lived and played soccer in, in Melbourne way back in 2002. Uh, of course, the mat- matches in the A-League's kind of predecessor, which wasn't that great, actually, because I'm quite glad to see the way it's improved in the last uh, decade and a half. Last time I was over, it was 2013, I watched Alessandro Del Piero play for Sydney FC. You remember we had that season there? And the atmosphere there was a kind of hybrid teams with English and Italian sort of songs. And the, the Melbourne victory game that I tried to get into was actually sold out. So. What's that sort of fan culture like in Australia?
2: There's some varying cultures depending on whereabouts you'll watch football. But certainly I think you're kind of right that there is a bit more of a, a kind of ultra culture over here, um, especially with a team like Western Sydney who have the Red and Black block, which are, are kind of the hardcore of their group. And I think you you look at the headlines at the Red and Black block have made and you'd recognise a lot about, say, Italian culture in there. Um, they're big on kind of the marches and the flares and things that you'd rec- that fans of European football would really recognise. Um, comes with a few more ugly side of things, but actually, Australian media I find tend to hype up any kind of trouble around soccer, whereas AFL and NRL don't quite get so many headlines around there. And I think a lot of it kind of comes from the fact that a lot of the soccer support is drawn from. Along very much kind of nationalistic and ethnic lines over here. So you do get a lot of fans and a lot of clubs and a lot of the clubs in in the kind of state football area are often affiliated with 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 kind of one country or another, Um, which is is quite interesting. And when you've kind of got up to the A-League, you do get some of that but not totally. And the idea of, um, of the A-League when it was created, and it has been for a really long time in in Australian soccer, is that it, the idea was to, to kind of, in a way, de the game because you tend to get an interest in the Australian game from the Anglo-Australians when the Socceroos, the national team, were playing. But they weren't so interested in, in the kind of club game. And there'd always been a, a feeling that... For the game to really grow, it needed to get the interest of the local audience um, and move beyond just the clubs back in the days which you mentioned, which is the the kind of um, old National Soccer League days when they were kind of smaller clubs that had grown out of of those kind of immigrant communities whereas now teams kind of almost have a blank slate I mean if you think the, the kind of Premier League's bag for starting F football at 1992 again over here the talk of when you talk about football a lot of commentators will talk from the start of the A League which is actually a really really young league and there's years of history that's gone before but the clubs are totally different than anything that's gone beforehand so you, you do get a kind of very different type of culture. And I think it's only really Western Sydney that really have tapped into that. Um, and that's partly because of, of the way that the two clubs in Sydney were kind of built up. Sydney FC is based in the eastern suburbs. It's traditionally quite a, a, a rich white collar area and tends to kind of draw a lot of, of white collar support from it. Yes, there were always clubs around that area, but actually a lot of the clubs in the more kind of blue collar immigrant West is where that, that kind of soccer heartland was. You've got really famous clubs. Um, anybody who's interested, look into the history of clubs like Marconi, which is a, a big kind of famous Italian yeah. club that was, was kind of fallen on harder times over here. So that was really logical when the, the FFA created this new side, Western Sydney, um, that actually that was a magnet for a lot of uh, fans who didn't really feel that Sydney FC represented them. It was kind of Sydney FC was seen as, as a kind of, Of middle-class glamour club and Western Sydney was kind of a response to that and you contrast that in um, Melbourne between Melbourne Victory and Melbourne Heart. Melbourne Victory was was kind of designed to be a team for kind of all of Melbourne and then you get the Heart come in um, who were then also designed to be a team that kind of drew their support from all of Melbourne and it's why I talked briefly a bit earlier about Melbourne City not really having much of an identity because they don't Really represent any kind of geographical area within the city at all. Victory don't be- have been there beforehand, so have drawn a lot of that that kind of Melbourne support and a lot of city fans. I think were people who just didn't want to support Victory for one reason or another. But there's lots of kind of pockets around Melbourne where, you and especially South Melbourne, where there's a very famous club, South Melbourne Hellas, yes. now just known as South Melbourne, um, who drew a lot of their support from the Greek community. It was one of the bigger clubs um in the old kind of nsl days again that's actually where you got um Postacoglu sort of really came through and has the the strongest association is with that club and there's always been a talk of could south melbourne to stay in a club and i think if you'd seen when there'd been that expansion and the second melbourne team have come in if it had grown out of the south melbourne route i think you'd have seen a club that would have been very similar in in kind of feel to the western sydney wanderers as it is you've got got two teams to kind of you're not quite sure where they come. But there's a lot of kind of ultra-chanting at Sydney. There's a guy who stands with a megaphone trying to get people into chants. I suspect you'll probably see a few bit more lively at the Western Sydney game this weekend than there was against Wellington, where... It was Sunday night and you had a few people who were kind of reacting with slight indifference to, to the to the guy who was barking out instructions on their kind of ultra area of the cove. But it's great that you've got got people who've really embraced that, because otherwise I think it would just feel like a fairly sedate experience. And it does add that little bit of culture and edge. And it's a it's a really weird mix between kind of a very family culture. From one stand, and then you've got the ultras in in another stand, and then perhaps you've got people who've who've just come in as as kind of casuals in other fans. So it's a kind of they all rub up against each other, and I think by and large they do it quite well. You know, if if you're kind of a young fan who's really passionate, you'll probably go in with the ultras. If you're somebody like me, he's a little bit older now and just wants to sit and watch football and and have a beer while you're watching football, then you'll probably just go in in with the other stands in there. So it's a nice mix and I quite enjoy it. Um, It certainly is a nice contrast to Premier League where it can be quite sort of quiet and especially say, contrast it with someone like Arsenal, yes, people might kind of look at the, the attempt to get the crowd going, which sometimes is successful, sometimes less. Um, but they'll, at least they're, they're doing something in there. And when it works, it really works. And, you know, when you get those big games, you do get an absolutely cracking atmosphere there as well. Where does soccer
0: sit compared to the other big sports? And obviously it's developing, but you the various codes of football, so AFL, which is based on very regional... Suburb based often, especially within Melbourne, as, as you know, NRL, that's the rugby league. And of course, rugby union, which is more sort of state uh, city related. How does it compete with those
2: other codes of, uh, of football? Um, I think it's probably fair to say that it still can struggle for attention a lot of the time. It does. It's starting to get more column inches than it has done before. A lot of that, I think, kind of depends on a number of things. Um, if the national team are winning and doing well, then there is always renewed interest in the club game. So funnily enough, at the moment you, you have the soccer who's not doing particularly well. So are getting a, an awful lot of criticism, but actually the Matildas, um, the women's side are probably one of the best sides in the world at the moment. Um, just recently beat Brazil in in a kind of double header. Um, and certainly the W league gets uh, quite a lot of attention compared to say other um, female leagues over in the in in europe so i think that and that's kind of a partly result of 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 the fact that the women's team do have a very good side and and some of the best players in the world Um, but then on on the the club side it does struggle and so this season um the season generally kicks off after um the long weekend in, in october in australia which is when you'll typically have the nrl grand final followed by the afl grand final then a week later um the football kicks off and on one hand it's good because you have an unbroken kind of sporting area and anybody who kind of wants to to sort of follow another sport has soccer and soccer it doesn't generally compete too much with with kind of afl or nrl even when it sort of gets the end of the season the, the other two codes are starting to kick off um so they don't rub up against each other too much in terms of competition for bumps on seats but in terms of competition for attention you wouldn't have even known i don't think that the if the soccer season was starting over here had you not been a fan and i think that's one of their biggest problems they struggle to get the press versus afl and nrl and when cricket's around as well and this being an ashes summer um, i think cricket will probably be one of the biggest uh biggest challenges um you've got the big bash league which starts in january which always draws pretty big crowds you'll have the ashes as well and australians do tend to focus on it and again a lot of this comes back to what i was saying before that traditionally australian football was played more by the immigrant population and the anglo-australian population played nrl if you were kind of sydney new south wales uh queensland or they played afl if you were for melbourne um and so you've kind of got this thing. that It wasn't really seen as an Australian sport. It's only just started to be seen to to get that. There's a lot more TV coverage. It's got its first free-to-air um, sort of season this season where it's on, on a free-to-air channel, not just on Foxtel. So all these things are kind of gradually growing, but a lot does depend on everything else that's going on around. So... I mentioned that the media tend to, to pick up quite negatively if there's, there's even a little hint of trouble with football fans and can sometimes get weirdly hysterical um, over here. Uh, on the other hand as well, if you don't have any big stars in the league, then that can be a problem as well. So you mentioned seeing Del Piero. That was a huge catalyst, having one of the biggest players um, that had ever played in the A-League to, to come over. And there was a spate of, of kind of quite big players who, who were over at roughly the similar time you had Heskey at the Jets and and Damien Duff was playing um, in Melbourne as well and yeah okay you might say neither of those are quite as big as Del Piero but they're still really you know they're, they're full internationals they're well known from the Robbie period. Fowler as well um, right? um, yeah Fowler had a brief spell at, at North Queensland Fury funnily enough he's been linked with the Western Sydney Wanderers coaching job as well so you know having a big stars from foreign leagues does really help and it does it, it might sound like it's glory hunting but you do get a lot of people who are just turn up because of the these big names and in the last few seasons there haven't really been too many big names there's been a lot of quality foreign imports coming in but they're only really recognisable to people who follow those leagues you don't really have any kind of younger superstars of Australian soccer being built up again a lot of the bigger better players who are Australian are only really known to people who watch Australian soccer. They don't really sort of bring get pulled out from, from elsewhere as well. A lot of the better Australian players, obviously the likes of, of Aaron Moy and, and Matthew Leckie, play in leagues abroad like uh, the Premier League and, and the Bundesliga. So you, you don't really have that kind of recognition. And yes, you will get it when a player like Tim Cahill returns and, and plays a bit. But I think it's really telling that a lot of my kind of colleagues at work are all they're really into the premier league really really into the premier league know their premier league well some of them might even know a bit about kind of follow a bit of european football they might follow some of the lower leagues as well because you obviously got a lot of brits around there they're not so interested in the a league and this is like these are people i work with who i'd say you know they are proper fans they really love football they just don't really kind of watch the a league they'll watch the soccer rules, but they won't tend to go to an a-league game which i think's a kind of a nice kind of sum up of, of the kind of problem there's an interest in in football there's certainly an interest in foreign football in the english premier league versus uh wow. versus other codes um and you get huge crowds whenever any of the 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 premier league teams tour over here but it's still afl and nrl that dominate and the club game mm, not so much it, it, it kind of suffers it's only really the national team that that pick up and if they're not doing particularly well then again, the sporting public tend to lose interest. And it's, it's a mentality I'm starting to get over here that just how much the Australians love a winner and love a winning mentality. And if the national side isn't winning, they're kind of not really interested. And if, if they've either got to be winning or they've got to be that plucky underdog, both of which are kind of liked. If they're a bit mediocre and really toiling, like both the football side and, to a lesser extent, the rugby union international side have been doing over, over the last couple of years, then um, kind of interest to drop away. Yeah, that's a big shape. It sounds like it's going to take off maybe a generation
0: to sort of bed in, really. Um, baby steps, etc. Certainly more competition and uh, attracting big names would help. All right, then. Well, thanks so much for your time, Gary. What can, where can people
2: uh, connect with you and, and, and where can they get hold of your podcast? Sure. So um, you can find me on Twitter at GAFootBL. Um, and I also uh, have a podcast with a friend of mine, Chris Oakley. It's uh, rather imaginatively it's called Chris and Gary Talk Sport. Uh, you can find it on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook. And you can also follow us on Twitter at CGTalkSport. Not just limited to football. So if you're interested about anything from uh, sport down under, from rugby to the Rugby League World Cup, so even netball, all big sports down here. Um, we talk about pretty much everything. But there's obviously a slight bias towards football, given where we both come
0: from. And we'll link to that as well. And I uh, thoroughly recommend that anyone who happens to go to Australia during soccer season checks out an A-League game, or even some of the lower league, because I know you've been going along to some of the uh, local stuff as well, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've been a couple of games. Um, I went to... Um, Rockdale City Suns versus Bonnie Rig White Eagles, Rockdale, uh, the Macedonian club. Um, and that was an experience. It's like a non-league round, but everybody's talking in Macedonian around you and all the, all the snacks are Macedonian. Um, it's it's a kind of familiar yet very disconcerting experience. Um, and also went to the, the state football final between um, Leichhardt, who are one of the Italian teams in Sydney, and Manly, who don't really draw, as far as I can tell, from, from much of a, a kind of particular community but that was a nearly full ground at the Leichhardt Oval um went to watch also uh, an FFA Cup game and they've modeled their cup um to a certain extent on the FA Cup and it's been a really big success um I'd say certainly it's got a lot of attention and has shone a light on on those lower teams and watched uh Eastern Sydney City versus uh, Melbourne City and that was a that was a really entertaining game and they they play that quite cleverly because actually they tend to have the, the games at the start of the season. So pre-season or very start of the season for, for a lot of the games. So you'll have it. The um, it's, it's a curious system here where the state league plays during the winter months, um, but the the A-League plays during the summer months. So you actually get the state league teams coming off their regular season and before the A-League teams have really kicked into their season. So whilst there haven't been um, too many upsets later, Later on in the competition you do get one or two and it does have a feel it does feel like the fa cup they've done a really good job of replicating it and if you happen to be over here say towards the end of um, you know towards the end of the winter that's a great time try and catch uh, an ffa cup game because they're great atmospheres and i think they're a lot more kind of representative of of what the uh, the underlying culture is than perhaps even some of the, the kind of league games against state football, which tend to be a bit more regular social club. The cup games are really something quite special. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, Gary, for your time. No problem at all. Thank you.
0: You can find more football travel guides and football history and culture over at OutsideRight, W-R-I-T-E dot co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at OutsideRight, Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye now.